Hello, welcome to the D&D Roundtable presented by The Tome Show. I'm your host, James Intercasso. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. You just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then you shop as you normally would. Today, we're talking about the announcement that Dungeons & Dragons has partnered with Fantasy Grounds to bring official D&D content to the virtual tabletop. And we're talking about an article on the D&D website about modifying classes, which provides a favored soul build for the sorcerer and a spellless ranger. But first, let's meet our panel and kick things off with our get-to-know-you question. Which pop music star would make the best dungeon master? Ladies and gentlemen, Topher Cohen is here to answer that very question. This was a tough one for me, James. <laughs> this was hard. Most people would think I would go with Jimmy Page, right? I mean, mm -hmm. let's be clear. Why not? But <laughs> that seems reasonable. Seems reasonable, right? Uh, a big fan of his and all that. But I'm going to go with Neil Peart. Ooh, the drummer for Rush. And I'm going to oh. go with Neil Peart because he wrote all of the lyrics to Rush songs. <laughs> so that really? tells me he, yeah, he was the lyricist Whoa. for Rush. And it tells me that he'd be a great storyteller. Mm -hmm. And that's what I really look for in a good DM is a good storyteller. And I think he would kind of just take it to the next level. And if anybody out there doesn't wants to question me about the greatness of Rush, you're just not <laughs> smart enough to understand Rush. That's your problem. <laughs> oh. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I actually am going to bring it over to the person who I know knows more about pop music than anyone else, and that is Andrew Kane. Andrew Kane, which pop music star would be the greatest dungeon master? Wow. I mean, that's quite the intro. Uh, obviously, Lady Gaga, um, because she would probably like dresses the monsters or the dice or something and really just make it work. I think she'd go all in uh, on every aspect of the game. That's true. I think showmanship, right, would be a, yes. would be a big part of her dungeon master. She'd like props and that right. kind of thing. For sure. So maybe not the best choice if you like a more low-key kind of... I don't know what, but, you know, <laughs> she's, she's going she's gonna to be in your face. I like that. <laughs> That's uh, a really good answer. <laughs> I'm a fan. I'm a fan of that answer. <laughs> and of course, we have another international pop music aficionado. Oh, wow. Greg oh, wow. Blair is with us. Greg Blair, which uh, pop music star would make the best dungeon master? I mean, my, my choice is an international singer. So, hey, look at you. Good job. I'm going to take it back a little earlier than Lady Gaga. Similar vein in some ways, actually. But I would love to play a game as envisioned by the one, the only, David Bowie. Oh. Nice. Nice. Right? I mean, all the crazy stuff that comes out of his brain, man. Like, the showmanship, the involvement in, in his characters. Like... That would be rad. I would I would think that. If you could get David Bowie and Iggy Pop at the table together, you got oh yourself God. a game. <laughs> I don't think I could actually play in that game. I think I would just die. <laughs> that I would mean, be psychedelic for sure. It would be a very psychedelic game. <laughs> I'd play it. I just don't think I'd survive it. Well, the other thing that's great about David Bowie, of course, is that he was in the hit movie Labyrinth. Right. Uh, which in and of itself is kind of like a D&D &D campaign. It pretty much is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Vegas Lancaster, which music pop star would make the greatest dungeon master? Oh, David Bowie. Well, Greg's right. (laughs) He wins this week's podcast. (laughs) Did it. Yay. Uh, I believe the guys in Weezer play D&D. They do. So probably those guys. Let's talk about our first topic, which is Fantasy Grounds. As you guys probably already know, D&D has partnered up with Fantasy Grounds to allow Fantasy Grounds, which is a virtual table that people pay to use, to sell officially licensed D&D products on the website that they have. Fantasy Grounds allows all of these different uh, price points, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. Right now, you can get a complete core class pack, which includes everything from the player's handbook. You can get a complete core monster pack, which includes everything from the monster manual. You can get uh, the Lost Minds of Fandelver. They have also promised that Elemental Evil and Tyranny of Dragons content will eventually be available. Uh, If you don't want to spend the money on these larger packs and you are a player, you can pick up just a few class packs. Uh, Similarly, DMs can pick up just a monster type. For instance, you can buy just dragons or just monstrosities if you want and not have to go whole hog. Um, I'm sure one of the things we're going to talk about is definitely the price point barrier to entry. You know, I I think it's interesting because it sort of came out of nowhere. Fantasy Grounds started counting down using the D&D font on their social media ahead of time. But other than that, there weren't really like, hey, something big is coming and and that sort of thing. And it also doesn't say that this is an exclusive deal um, that perhaps... Wizards of the Coast will be working with other people in the future to bring us digital D&D products that we can play on tabletops and everything. I would like to start with my main man, Topher Cohen. Topher, what did you think about this whole thing? Okay, so the idea of playing, of giving the game to a larger community through a virtual tabletop is fantastic. And one of the biggest complaints, I think, that anybody who has tried to DM via any of the virtual tabletops is the prep time because it's more prep time than you do at the table. You can't just slap down a piece of, uh, you know, one of the Pathfinder flip maps and draw it on it really quickly. You have to think things out. You have to do all these things ahead of time, be really ready for it. And to be able to give people all of this stuff pre-done in there, you don't have to enter stats. You can just pull in what you need. I think it's fantastic. I love everything about that. Here's my issue. (laughs) Uh, I already spent 50 bucks on a DMG. I already spent 50 bucks on a player's handbook and I already spent 50 bucks on a monster manual. So I'm going to turn around and I'm looking at the pricing right now for the, the D and D core, uh, complete core pack is 49 99. And the, the D and D complete core monster pack is 49 99. And the free basic rules that wizard of the coast gives away on the website is $2 and 99 cents. Mm-hmm. I understand there's some level of lifting on their end to put this content in a format that Fantasy Ground can use, which, by the way, Fantasy Ground is not a free product on top of that. Somebody somewhere has to pay a license, whether it's the DM getting the ultimate license, which allows the players to play free, or DM getting a regular license and the players getting a license. It's not like some of the other virtual tables out there. I think that's a huge roadblock to getting more people to play this game via virtual tabletops because the average group now is going to spend in the hundreds of dollars again to sit down and play this game and i i i have an issue with that i think that's a i think that's a, an unnecessary 
gated community to this. I think the part of the reason they came out with it right now, James, is the fact that when we sent an, I sent an email about this earlier today is that Wizard of the Coast has officially started supporting online play for Adventures League. Mm-hmm. And it's something you know is probably really near and dear to me. And it's <laughs> been, been something that's big enough that they also are giving it a region. So the um, the campaign crew, which is which where the regional coordinators are based out of, now online play is going to have its own region. It has its own Facebook group. I think that's why this happened when it did, because they wanted to coincide that all together. So they could not only say, yes, you can play your D&D encounter game on Wednesday nights online, but here's all the material you need to do that. Well, and I, for one, was very excited about that because it meant that, uh, you know, people who do not have access to the expeditions adventures um, will be able to play those adventures. Now, if they're not able to get to a local friendly game store or if like a flagship store is just nowhere near them, they can now experience these games, um, which I think is actually pretty cool. Uh, but uh, Topher, one question I have about that is if you are going to be part of the online organized play community, do you have to do it through Fantasy Grounds or can you do it through another virtual game table? You through any virtual game table. It's just like running any public event, right? Just like a con. You It has to be public and people and so anybody can show up you have to have signups and that kind of thing the oh, one drawback they have right now is just like a convention you still have to be tied to a store they're looking to fix that looking to change that rule but right now let's say if tomorrow james i wanted to start running expeditions over um, roll 20 let's go uh, let's do it right <laughs> i'd still have to have a physical store go to wizards sign up Get me the material. I'd still have to get DCI numbers from you guys. Give it to the um, store to report. They're looking to streamline that a bit, but at least... You actually can't. Like, if you don't have a local friendly game store, you're actually still out of luck. No. So the way they're getting around it is there are stores, there are big stores, the big flagship stores, mm-hmm. that are allowing people who who don't live near them to, to contact them, and they're sponsored. Oh, okay. So we can play pretend. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, ultimately that's the key, James. It can be on any platform as long as it's public and you and right now you got to go through a store. That's the upside of this. And I think that's why Fantasy Grounds, the concept of Fantasy Grounds is really exciting to me because it really as someone who wants to get this game out and really is excited about the Adventures League and get this content out to as many people as possible because it's my favorite game in the world. <laughs> I am I'm there cheering with my fist up in the air going, "This is fantastic." Until I got to pay you money again. <laughs> yeah. Come on, guys. Well, so here's the thing about the money, right? They have to charge money for it. It costs work, you know, to make this stuff. I don't know how their format works. Um, so I can't speak to the amount of work. I would assume that it's, you know, that they're not doing software development. It's really like a data format that already exists. Maybe they had to do some kind of development to integrate the specific rules and whatnot and how all that stuff plays together. You mentioned the cost of Fancy Grounds. Um, Fancy Grounds is on Steam, right? Mm-hmm. The Steam is famous for crazy sales. So it's $40 for a regular license on Steam. Um, you get a four-pack for buck twenty, So you get one for free. The lowest price for a four-pack was, was down to $83. So if you've got a group of four, which you would need generally more, right? that's a little more than $20 a person, um, that's still not super cheap but it's better than 40, right? The thing that I really don't get, though, is, so we were talking about the core class pack and, you know, the, the big roll-ups. Why, 
And if you look at the monsters, actually, all the monster packs, $5 a piece. Why are the character class packs different prices? Some of them are $5, some are 6 and some are 3 What? <laughs> Does that make sense to anyone else? Like Paladin is no. 6 bucks, Rogue is $3, you know, Ranger is 6 Yeah, Wizard is 3 Like, I don't understand what's, what's the logic so behind that. I'd be much more willing to I, – I'd have a lot less issue with them charging for the modules and the rule sets and the character packs. Right, because you're right. There's there's work there involved in making yeah. that happen. Right, I, I I buy stuff off the Roll Twenty store all the time. Mm-hmm. That's not my issue. My issue is that I got to buy that on top of buying the product to start off with, and I've literally already spent that exact same price point on a monster manual. So yeah, now definitely. I'm spending a hundred bucks for <laughs> for the same thing. That's my complaint. My complaint, I, I hear you, and you're 100 percent right. Is the fact that somebody took time, they had to pay somebody to make this yeah. content available in Fantasy Grounds. Fantastic. Charge me for it. Don't mm-hmm. fifty dollars for a virtual product. That's a little steep for me in my mind. But okay, the fact that I have to buy the basic rule set after I buy yeah. Fantasy Ground itself. That's where my problem comes in. That's where I think the gate is too high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just for comparison's sake, if you look at a similar product, right? Um, I haven't used Fantasy Grounds. I haven't used Hero Lab, right? So I can't directly compare them. But if you want to just look at character stuff, on Hero Lab, which is just a character builder, it's not a full online, uh, you know, tabletop, virtual tabletop. But I imagine for the character packs, it's this is pretty analogous here. Each game system is twenty dollars for Hero Lab, right? Versus if you want just the players. Uh, the complete core class pack. It's fifty dollars for Fantasy Grounds. I mean, uh, the core pack does include the D and D basic rules. So, so uh, for that fifty bucks, you're getting the the characters and the basic rules. Greg, on to your note about arbitrarily priced class packs. It looks like all of the classes that are in the basic rules are the cheaper ones. So your cleric, your fighter, your rogue, and your wizard are all three dollars. I don't mm. know what makes a barbarian and monk. Uh, $5 and a paladin and ranger five fifty, and a sorcerer and warlock six bucks. Like, I'm not sure why those things are that way. Uh, but it, it does, there does seem to be consistency with the $3 ones at least. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's, there's at least some potential logic there, right? And I'll grasp it what I can. I think it's, it's great in theory. It's just rough in practice. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's the thing, right? Topher is that, uh, I, a lot of people did not mind shelling out $50 for a player's handbook. Uh, and a lot of people don't mind shelling out 150 bucks to get the monster manual, the DMG and the player's handbook. Um, because these are games you're going to sink hours and hours and hours into, but now you're being asked to shell out uh, another large chunk of change, especially if you are the kind of person who wants to use this, you want to have all the options available. And you also know that as new options come out, like, is Elemental Evil going to cost you more? Even if you already bought the core complete uh, pack, obviously, if you want to make uh, you know, a druid that has access to the Elemental Evil spells, mm-hmm. or you want to be a Swerf Nablin, maybe you're going to have to buy that pack. You know? Of course you do. Duh. So, and, and I think that is also frustrating uh, for people, although we got that material for free to begin with, so it's not as big a deal to, to have to pay for it. I don't know. I think it would depend on the cost of it. Andrew Kane, what do you think of this announcement overall, and what do you think of the pricing as well? Just to reiterate what Topher started off with saying, I think it's great to have a, I guess, 
for lack of a better term, integrated online component, you know, kind of an officially licensed uh, Dungeons and Dragons type thing. Like, I think that's a great step uh, because there are a lot of virtual tabletops. And so I guess from just the utility of use, potentially, it could save a lot of time uh, from the front end of preparation, front loading a lot of information, etc. So I think that's great. I do think, as has been said already, the the price points can be challenging. I understand them, but it is kind of frustrating. I could see, though, if a group were playing, if they were consistently playing together, I could see them potentially um, all going in together on a ultimate license, etc. But again, then paying for all the other components that could, even if you're sharing the costs around a a group, whether large or small, um, if you've already made purchases of the hard copies of things, is going to be it's going to be challenging uh, to sell people on that, uh, especially when uh, I think you know most of this stuff came out before. So if you were really into it, you would have already made that purchase, not knowing this was coming. Whereas, kind of, if you wanted to go this route. You know what I mean? If you knew it was coming, you might say, oh, I'm going to have to hold off on getting that stuff. I'll just live with the basic rules or whatever. Um, I think that's an important thing because obviously this was kind of just came. uh, And so I think that's an important thing because if you don't know, you're going to have the option. Then suddenly you find yourself, okay, well, I already paid for all of these things. Now do I want to pay for for this online piece uh, or do I just go my own way? I mean that's that's a nice thought, but Hasbro would never ever let that happen because that would be throwing money away. Here, the, I mean, I think from a bu- they would never do that from a business perspective. Um, it's like I want to give them my money, right? Mm-hmm. I just don't want to give them this much of my money, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, uh, just kind of like a related thing. So we use Roll Twenty, right? Mm-hmm. And Roll Twenty is amazing. And it already has great character sheet in it. I mean, even from a year ago, Roll20 went from being, wow, this is really cool, to, holy cow, this is awesome. Does anybody know about kind of a wizard's relationship with Roll20? Like, could they send them a cease and desist? I mean, that'd be a terrible idea, I think. Why would I spend $90 at retail price when I can already do this for free? And it's amazing. I don't think at the moment... Uh, Roll20 can be sent a cease and desist because they don't have any content on there other than a character sheet. Right. The mechanics can't be copyrighted. Yeah. Now, they, you, Roll20 can't say, here's a beholder. Right. Because that's a wizard-only monster, right? Yeah. They'd have to license special that. Term. But how you figure out if you hit something or how much damage a weapon does, they can bake that into the character sheet all day long yeah. because that's not something you can copyright. You were saying about how um, uh, you wish all this had been announced before you bought the books. I don't think they knew this was going to happen before you bought the books because no. they were still working with stupid uh, trapdoor games. <laughs> uh, trapdoor wow, technology. fire, jeez. Uh, no show Jones over there. I don't know that this is meant to take the place of what trapdoor technologies was creating because that was actually meant for uh, like a an aid at the table and it was meant to replace pdfs and ebooks and that kind of thing so uh and it sounds like in some recent interviews that the brand director has done they're still looking for someone to make official virtual tools which is pretty cool i think that they've got to back to you guys earlier point they've got to partner with roll 20 or someone like that and make this again i'm still on the pay for the product right i'm still on to pay for character yeah. classes and the rule set and all that kind of stuff 
you, they've got to, they've, let's face the facts. What this comes down to, what we're really saying here is they've got to work out the OGL license. It's been long enough. Preach it, brother. It's, Preach it. It, it we're, we're about to, we're halfway through April. We're about to hit May. Work out the license. Let people who want to create content, create content. Let it be legal and, you know, stop sending what is considered the nicest cease and desist letter in the history of cease and desist letters to people. Let them have a license that they can work with. And once that's in place, then I think that we can then hope to get stuff into places like Roll20 and or Hero Labs. Because let's face it, I don't care how easy it is to create a character in 5e, people mm -hmm. still want a character builder. Yes, yeah, exactly. And I think as more options come out, it's going to become harder and harder. I was just going to say, to Greg's point, why would, when he was saying, you know, when you have something like Roll20, which you can use for free, you know, why would you necessarily want to pay money for this? And I was just going to make the point that I've had experience playing with some people where the task of putting the information into the <laughs> character sheet to then use it can be a long, arduous, compelling, you know, you really should do this. I don't want to do it. I'm not saying someone on this podcast does that, but, um, So to shorten my point, I guess I can see the appeal of a licensed product where you just click a button to say, I now have the spell and everything's done for you. You don't have to build in the stuff. Again, I'm not saying I love Roll20. I'm not saying that I need mm -hmm. that, but I can see how for some people okay. uh, that would be very appealing and worth the money or not. For I some think. idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Vegas. I just had to put you on blast for a minute. Uh, Vegas. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, you guys are saying, yeah, we want to pay for the products. I already did. I paid $50 no. for all your stupid books. And I got them all the day they came out because I love you so much. <laughs> Let me scan a barcode. <laughs> Prove that just, I own Just them. counterpoint here, Vegas. As, you know, someone who makes software for a living, it's not free. I don't have a problem with them charging for a cool product on the internet. It's not trivial. Or, you know, you don't just click a button on the book and, oh, look, now my rules are all magical and ready for virtual tabletop. You know, it's not like that. It's not that easy. So I'm okay with them charging money. Just not this much money. Yeah. Well, and let me throw this out there. Um, I, we keep saying $50 is a, a lot. We talked about it for the player's handbook earlier in earlier editions of the podcast, that it's more than we've ever played for, paid for a player's handbook before. It's, uh, now being asked of us again. However, when I look at roll 20, um, I have logged over a thousand hours in roll 20. I've logged 1,082 hours so far, and I will probably log a thousand more. When I think of what a AAA video game costs me and the hours of entertainment I get from it, you know, it does seem like, uh, well, you know, if I was going to play on Fantasy Grounds all the time and it was really going to make my life a lot easier, you know, asking people to pay another 50 to to $100, if they're going to use it all the time, I think, like you said, Andrew Kane, is maybe not unreasonable. Uh, but at the same time, I also think, like, we are adults. We have income. We have <laughs> jobs. A lot of people who play this game or a lot of people who are going to be new to this game may not want to put that investment in. Like, yeah, the, the hardcore guys who play once a week and are always going to be there or who are going to maybe be part of organized play will want to do this. But what about the new guy, right? What about the person who's new and wants to try out D&D &D encounters? Or what about the person who, uh, you know, is a boyfriend or girlfriend and has been convinced to play? Um, 
or the kid who's a teenager who doesn't have an income, you know, or the people who it's just harder for them to make ends meet. This makes it harder to play the game because the price point is so high. I was going to say, James, it looks like you should be throwing some money roll 20s way. Uh, but it looks like you already did because you <laughs> use dynamic lighting in our game. And only paid supporters get to use that. I am, yeah, I am a mentor level supporter of uh, Roll Twenty. That's the highest level. It is, and it is. What is it like? A hundred bucks a year? Yeah, uh, ninety nine, ninety nine. So not a hundred. <laughs> so James, let me ask you a question. Why did you spend that hundred bucks? Was it to support the product or to make your life easier in the product? Or uh, both? So I actually, I initially started as the uh, $10 a year supporter. I was doing that because I wanted to support the table. The way I was playing it really didn't change. And then I discovered like, oh, now I do have this cool stuff like dynamic lighting and that kind of thing. Um, And then I was using it so much uh, that I felt like I wanted to become a mentor. and, uh, And then I wanted to start playing around with the API, which you can only do at a mentor level. So it's it's a little of both, um, you know. But it is it is mostly because I wanted to support Roll Twenty because they're a product that I use at least once a week and get a ton of enjoyment out of. And I feel like those guys should be rewarded for all of the hard work that they're doing. Uh, it just leads me to the thought of: Is there a pricing model that that uh, a company like Fancy Ground? And by let me be very clear: I'm sure Fancy Ground's fantastic. I've never used their product. You've had them on your podcast before. They seem like really super great guys. Super I don't nice. want to sound like. We're just banging on them, but as someone who wants to play virtual, because my time is limited, even though I have a friendly, a local friendly gaming store, uh, I also want to play virtual because it's just easier in my schedule with life. I, I'm trying to think of a, of a of a pricing model because we've said it, Greg said it, that it's just too much, quote unquote. What's the pricing model I'd be happy with? Again, my stumbling point is the cost of the table. If I could get around the cost of the table, I'd be willing to pay the price for the products. That's the problem I'm having right now is the price of the tables, what's really stumbling me as the entry point. I understand it's a table and it's a piece of software and there's a lots of work going into keeping it up and, you know, and servers and that kind of stuff. Right. And I understand that, that it's not just for D and D it's used for, you know, hundreds of different kinds of role-playing games. And, mm-hmm. But that's I, I, the reason, that's why I asked that question, James, I was trying to think of, What's the price point I'd be willing to pay a year or a month or whatever? Because they do offer a monthly subscription. I can do the ultimate subscription for the table at $9.99 a month for Fantasy Grounds. Right. Well, and the other thing is Fantasy Grounds, uh, the way that they operate is, you know, you would have to pay for, if you wanted to play Pathfinder, you're going to have to pay for a whole new set of rules and everything like that uh, once you get the table. Whereas Roll20, I pay the 100 bucks a month and that's, I can play whatever I want on Roll20, but it's they don't have the seamlessly integrated rules that we were talking about, you know, uh, so Fantasy Grounds does make your life a lot easier when you buy those packs. Uh, it is kind of all about the way you want to do it, and I also, you know, I think Fantasy Grounds, like Greg said, they have to make their money doing their thing and, and paying uh, for stuff, but then I think a lot of these other price points might be determined by Hasbro or Wizards of the Coast or whoever, you know. Fantasy Grounds may have no decision in what the price point for the D&D price packs is. They just charge you for the table, and that's the money they make. Um, and maybe they make a little bit off of the, the D&D packs. Uh, if I had Fantasy Grounds, would I run more games? Uh, yeah, because all the, because all the, the theory, a lot of the heavy lifting is already done for you. Uh, you know what? I don't, I don't think I would just because I'm so familiar with Roll20. And right now, 
I like right now I don't run more games not because of the prep but because I don't actually have the physical time to be a playing a game um <laughs> but uh but I do like the idea that um you know Roll20 has this feature too where you can buy adventures and pop them in and all the maps and stuff are set up for you but they don't have any 5e adventures because they don't sell officially licensed stuff I'd love to be able to just pop open Tyranny of Dragons and have the battle maps right there and be ready to run it. I think that would make my life easier. Have you guys talked yet about how beautiful Fantasy Grounds looks? It just it looks awesome. Uh, the just the screenshots and demos on their website. Um, I, I don't know if the UI uh, is as well crafted as the the design looks, um, but man, it's pretty. Uh, yeah. I guess that's what a uh, ton of dollars buys you. Yeah, it and it has a and it has a tutorial too that walks you through when you launch it. So mm-hmm. that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's hands down one of the best looking game tables out there. And uh, you know, and that the fact that like I could go in and and buy the starter set and have all those maps and everything ready to go is really really tempting. The one other thing that I have to say about this is I'm a Mac user. And uh, I don't have Fantasy Grounds for Max. Yeah, so, that's a, that's an issue I have too. Is the fact that I have to play it on my PC, so I can't be portable. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's hard. I mean, I, it sounds like if you get Wine, you know, it's it's pretty easy to uh, to run through a, a program like that or Parallels, obviously that kind of thing. Um, so there are workarounds for certain, but it would be nice to have a Mac version for something that I was going to pay for. Let's move on to our second topic of the evening, gentlemen. The Modifying Classes uh, Unearthed Arcana article that appeared on the Wizards of the Coast website on April 6th. They go through this thing and they give you some great options for creating your own sort of archetypes within classes and and how to modify a class there's a lot of good specific information for each class about like hey this ability is here for this reason so if you're going to mess with it know that you should be able to make up for this and you shouldn't take away an exploration ability and give somebody a combat ability because then they're going to be awesome in combat and terrible at exploration that kind of thing um so it's it's cool to see that information but i would say the Really, really fun parts are the examples that they provide. The first example is a ranger with no spells. And one of the things that they do to that is they give it the combat superiority feature of the Battlemaster Fighter. um, The ability to make some poultices and and heal more easily and call some allies, that kind of thing. Uh, And then they have the favored soul. And the favored soul, for those of you who did not play 3rd edition, appeared in the complete divine uh splat book and essentially you were like a chosen of the gods and it was the sorcerer uh to the cleric's wizard if that makes sense you know it it had spells known it didn't prepare spells and it cast spells using charisma not wisdom and it grew wings and all this other fancy stuff so uh, real interesting here, though, is that it is a, a sorcerer archetype, not a, a new sort of cleric path or anything like that. So I want to talk about these. Let's start off with the spellless ranger, guys. What did you think of the spellless ranger Vegas Lancaster? Uh, I think it's a, a cool idea. Um, uh, I think some people don't think of magic users when they think of rangers Mm -hmm. and i think that's why they provided this example um to 
shut up people who think of Aragorn when they hear the word ranger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, they even say that in the in the description that like, you know, we thought of Strider from Lord of the Rings when we provided this. What did you think of the overall mechanics? I think they're fun. I like that they can summon animals like a land Aquaman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is a, a fun ability. Uh, do you think it's, it seems balanced with spellcasting, Ranger? I think what they're trying to do is um, uh, bring in mechanics that are pretty similar to mm-hmm. the effects of spells and just say, look, they're not spells. He's He's doing something else. Yeah, yeah, but it's true that essentially these replicate the abilities of some of the Rangers' most iconic spells, for sure. What did you think about this, Andrew Kane? Uh, I liked it. I mean, I think it's an interesting option because it shows a great level of flexibility within the game. Uh, so I appreciated, first of all, just generally speaking, that they gave uh, you this idea of why certain things are kind of essential to a class. Um, And so if you're going to mess with it, you know, what you would want to do to compensate for that, et cetera. But I also think, you know, I I appreciate, you know, kind of, let's just say a uh, a DM or a GM wanted to change the nature of the game. So they wanted to wipe out a piece, you know, like, oh, there's no magic. Let's just say, I know that would be crazy. What are we talking about? No magic. But, you know, the idea that you could modify some classes so that you could still keep a lot of the features, but not, you know, do it in a different way is intriguing to me. I also think it allows people to build characters that maybe call on their idea of the character as opposed to just what they're told the character should be. So, um, you know, using the Aragorn Strider example, you know, some people might not be able to get around the fact that a ranger shouldn't cast spells, etc. cetera. Uh, so I think that's an interesting concept. That's a pretty cool idea, Kaner. Uh, Which? Uh, just like um, modifying classes so they're not using magic because you want to play in a low magic world, like a dark sun type place or something. I mean, I just think it could be interesting too. So that doesn't mean that you couldn't be, I mean, obviously it might eliminate certain classes from being terribly useful, but would also be interesting to play a healer, a cleric who doesn't have healing spells. They heal from whatever their knowledge of nature. (laughs) So a ranger. (laughs) What about you, Topher Cohen? What do you think about this ranger? So I think uh, Vegas hit it dead on the head, which those are words I never thought I'd say. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> Amazing. Uh, Got zinged. This is the, the classic fantasy, the Tolkien-esque kind of fantasy imagination of a ranger. Uh, I've seen it at tables, people playing the f- 5e ranger. And they get frustrated because, well, I can't cast any more spells. You're a ranger, dude. Like, <laughs> you do a lot of cool stuff besides casting spells. Uh, and I think this is very that classic um, high fantasy thought about rangers. And I like that. I like that a lot. I like what they did there. I like the fact. So uh, I think you know this, moment, James. I have no problem hacking worlds and, and hacking the rules to fit mm-hmm. a campaign setting or the world within my campaign setting. But I'm not very comfortable with hacking uh, characters and character classes. This is something, this document kind of made me feel a little bit like, well, okay, I could pull this off. Like, it's very straightforward. It gives me what I think is a really good uh, framework if I wanted to go through and kind of um, 
you know, hack up some characters in a, in a homebrew campaign world. I, I, I think it's great. I think everything you've given us so far in Unearth Arcana is fantastic. So let's move on then, guys. And why don't we talk about the uh, favored soul? What did you guys think about this class? Um, you know, again, I was a little surprised to see it as a sorcerer, but then I was like, oh, I guess it it, it kind of works. Um, certainly, it doesn't work as like a, a complete reverse archetype of the of the cleric or anything. Um, that would be a lot harder to engineer. Uh, but it did feel a little like maybe they're taking the easy way out because I wanted to have more cleric spells on the list uh, and less uh, sorcery spells. But I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, am I wrong, Topher Cohen? I think you are never wrong, James. That sense I've known, James. I'll tell you what this felt like for me. It felt like it was a paladin-cleric hybrid. Mm. Mm-hmm. It, it really felt like they were trying to take the holiness like making your your deity or your divineness of of being a paladin matter and having it be a really a much more driving force than i think most players play it as in the fifth edition that's what i saw it as i think because of that you're right there there, i think there should have been i would like to see more cleric spells and such involved i think that would have been way cooler to add in but as it is i would love to get this to the table and play test it i would I, i i would love to get both of these to the table and play test them at some point what about you, Kaner? What did you think? You'll be surprised to hear this. I really liked it. Ah. Uh, because I like the idea of not that they don't already exist in the game with the paths or your, you know, your sorceress origin or whatever, but I like the idea of kind of playing around with what is the traditional archetype of the character i agree i think i would like to see it go a little farther a little um as far as you know more towards the cleric but in a different way but i kind of like this idea of this kind of empowered person that isn't praying for spells or anything you know they're given to him as a chosen uh a chosen warrior um you know it reminds me a little bit of uh, a warlock as well minus obviously the contents of the pact but again kind of this this person who is it's not just oh i'm a i'm a priest to this god or goddess or i do this or that and i kind of you know you're cho- you know i i can see character wise it would be cool um you could you could play around a lot with that you know they're on a mission type thing uh not that you can't do that now but i just kind of like the concept vegas lancaster what did you think uh, I agree with your surprise, James, that mm-hmm. they chose to make the favorite soul kind of a template on top of the sorcerer class. Uh, and I think the reason for that is it's a example of what they're trying to show you you can do um, uh, within this document. Because um, I, I would never have thought, oh, I'll just take a sorcerer and make it more clericky, and that's a favored soul. Uh, <laughs> that's some creative thinking, but I actually like how that sounds flavor-wise. It makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, I, what I really like about this article isn't so much the um, sample characters like you guys were uh, interested in, but I, I like just... Uh, diving into the mechanics and the the suggestions on what you really ought to keep and what you can play around with if you want to modify or make up classes. Well, James, the upside is you have this document now. You can <laughs> give it more cleric spells. Yes, exactly. Well, and that's what I was going to say is I would probably keep it 
basically the same. I would just swap out the sorcerer spell list for the cleric spell list, and boom, bang, bang, done. <laughs> And, uh, and see how that works out. I would probably need to adjust some things from there. I'm sure there are people on the internet whose heads are exploding as we speak. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, that's going to do it then for this week on the Roundtable Podcast. Uh, where can people find you, Topher? Uh, they can find me on the Facebook at uh, Topher uh, Cohan, K-O-H-A-N. That's T-O-P-H-E-R-K-O-H-A-N. They can find me on the Twitters at Topher A-T-L. Um, and they can also find me every Wednesday and uh, some Sundays at Titan Games and Comics in Smyrna, Georgia, where I happen to help them run their Adventures League. And if you live in the Southeast and you want to get more involved in Adventures League and want to find some place, hop on the Facebook, look for me. I'm the Southeast Regional Coordinator for Wizard of the Coast and for Organized Play, and I can point you in the right directions. And Southeast Region is Virginia all the way down to Florida, right? D.C. to Florida, the Atlantic Ocean to Arkansas. Vegas Lancaster, where can people find you? Uh, you can always find me on Twitter, at Vegas Lancaster. Uh, if you're in the Philadelphia area, I'm performing with the Philly N Crowd most Friday nights. And if you're a big old geek in the Cape Cod, Massachusetts area, uh, I'm going to be doing stand-up with Plus Two Comedy at Nauticon in Provincetown, Massachusetts, in mid-May. That sounds awesome. It will be. <laughs> Andrew Kane, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter at Cavalier Kane. That's K-A-V-A-L-I-E-R-K-A-N-E. And uh, Greg Blair had to uh, pop off because he is a dad and his child needed him. But you can find him on Twitter at N-T-S underscore Q-P-O-P. That's NTS underscore QPOP. Uh, and people, if you have a question or topic you'd like to hear us discuss on the roundtable, you can reach out to me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Or you can leave us a comment on the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com. And hey, a quick shameless plug for me. Please check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age. It's the fifth edition world that I am building. It's over at worldbuilderblog.me. Full of free resources, monsters, rules modules, all kinds of good stuff. All right, everybody, thanks for listening, and thanks to Topher, Vegas, Greg, and Andrew. And a special thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. And to Sam Dillon for getting the podcast out there on the airwaves. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. And hey, if you like the show, please rate The Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. It really helps a whole bunch. Keep on rolling. Keep on listening to that roundtable. <laughs>